0: If you have your Bible ready, you can open it up to the 13th chapter of 1 Corinthians. If you didn't bring a Bible or you don't feel like using your phone, the ushers have a Bible that you may use as well. They have pencils and an outline if that's something you want to take advantage of. And if you wanted a a copy of my manuscript, that should be on the back table, on the Bible table as well, if that will help you. There's a few of those that should be available. going to be in 1 Corinthians 13. This morning, continuing where we left off last week, of course. This morning, we begin what is almost a a little mini-series within our greater series through the letter to the church in Corinth, the first letter. Uh, Over the next six weeks, we will be considering love as it is defined by God. Love as God sets forth the standard of it. This is an important distinction, friends. We do not get to define what love is. We really shouldn't even play around with the definition of love, being that God himself tells us that he is love in 1 John 4.8. In other words, when we misunderstand what love is, we, when we buy into however the culture around us defines love at any differing point in history, we are in danger then of fundamentally misunderstanding who God himself is. Who Father, Son, and Spirit. He is love. And so it is good that the Apostle Paul instructs us here on how love is to be defined by God. Now this is part one, so I'm really only going to be dealing with a uh, 4A. A mere three words in the Greek, but for context, I'm going to read from verse 1 through 7. So let's read our passage, and then we'll ask the Lord to, bre- uh, to bless our time in His Word this morning after we read of it. So the reading of the Word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1 in 1 Corinthians 13. and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. That is the reading of God's holy, inspired, and sufficient word. May he grant us understanding. Let's pray and ask for that understanding. Gracious and holy God, we thank you for preserving your word for us, that we may understand and know who it is that you are and what it is that you are like. But Lord, we know that we can't understand in our own strength, and our own power, with our own ability, and so we pray for grace that you may illuminate the scriptures for us, that you would... Help me to only say what is true of you and right of you, that we would teach what is the intent of your word, not our own ideas. Help us all, Lord, to decrease that Christ may increase, and may you be glorified among us as your name is exalted here. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So what is love? Now when I say that, I I can't help but think of a pointless movie choice in the past in which what is love is a song and there's a really strange dance attached to that phrase. It's, it's really obscure and, and painfully awkward even. But it, it truly is an important question that one in every culture asks and then thinks about. Uh, And really, our cultures end up contributing to what uh, we think love is, whether that's accidentally or sometimes on purpose, to redefine love in such a way that it rejects the God who is love. And Paul's point to the Corinthian church and to us is that love may not be what we assume it to be. And cultures, in all places, in all terms, have tried to define love. I mean, when you go back throughout the course of history and you think about this topic of love, every culture, everyone has poetry about love, music about love. There's different ways of capturing and talking about and thinking about love. There are are countless attempts in every culture, whole genres of movies today and books today, uh, reality shows that seem unending about what is love and how to find love and things like that. Uh, you think in our culture alone, if you were just studying what us as a, as a people and what we believe about love, and you look at like a song or one of our cultural truisms, well, you'd, you'd gain something from that. Uh, it, it disciples you if you're not careful. We get something from the culture that we live in, either accidentally or intentionally. Maybe it's good. It's, it's probably bad, though. So, for example, we have like the Beatles' famous song, All You Need Is Love. that that says something i'm sure by the way though you must also have truth you can't have love without truth or tina turner's you know what does love have to do with it Uh, for her it's just a secondhand emotion right that's all that's all it is it's necessary it's not necessary for miss turner or others and then you have these little pithy sayings that our culture just loves something like love is blind Okay, well, I'm sure that might mean something different to someone and then something different to someone else. Or a popular one today is, is love is love, which is confusing and not even helpful in the first place. But this little phrase is actually the mantra of those who want to pervert love and use it to justify all sorts of immorality. You know, don't buy the love is love shirt at Target. That means something that you don't want to represent, something within our culture. So we're all watching and listening to these things, and you're getting these messages about what love is and, and, and what it is that we should think of love. Our culture is operating on this working knowledge of, of what love is developed through time. And then we come here, and we see that it just doesn't match what God's Word says, what God has to say about love. In the first three verses that we looked at last week, uh, there. are there's a commentator who points out that Paul was talking about in those first three verses the absence of love, the negation of love. But now as he gets to verse 4 and then coming on, he's going to switch his tone and now talk about the presence of love. It's the action of love or the the positive attributes of love, the positive traits that are in view now, which is a bit ironic because he's going to approach some of these actions from the negative um, following 4a and the section from last week the apostle's point was that christians can easily get the wrong idea about the spiritual gifts this was the issue for the church in corinth people should desire the gifts that are appropriate for the age that they are in that they are in which for these corinthian corinthians here in this corinthian church they were in the apostolic era and it, so that included the sign gifts even but the gifts of the spirit cannot properly be understood apart from their ultimate purpose, which is what the Corinthian church had forgot. And that is to equip the members of the body of Christ so that we bless one another, so that we love one another. Uh, The gifts aren't given so that we can make much of ourselves, so that we can boast in ourselves. If you lack love, it doesn't matter how perfect your theology is. It doesn't matter how much scripture you have memorized. And of course, you know, pursue good theology meditate on God's word, let it be written on on your heart so that you may not sin against him, pursue the spiritual gifts that are available to you, but do so by grace with the right motive, with the desire to glorify God and to love others. The purpose of the spiritual gifts is not for the benefit, enjoyment, and the status of the one who has them. So Paul, in this passage, now shifts from the ultimate worthlessness of good things when there is an absence of love to the traits and the presence of love and gives us, as Charles Hodge talks about in his commentary, not just a definition of love that you might find in a dictionary or something like that, but a rich description, not just of what love is like or is, but what love does. Uh, Love does something. It acts. The traits of love here are actually verbs, Uh, They are in the present active tense or in the middle tense, which is a, a tense that is associated with action in the Greek, and you lose that actually in our English translation some. It's just the choice that the translator has made here in the ESV. I don't have time to go into the reasons for that now, but if you note in our traits for this morning, patient and kind in the ESV, those are adjectives, those aren't verbs, And that's okay. It's not changing the meaning of this or the Spirit's intent. But the point is that we need to realize that love does something. It's not just a feeling, although emotion isn't devoid in this topic, but there are actions that are associated with love. All of these verbs, I think there's 15 of them coming up after uh, verse 4. They're all actually verbs in the Greek. Love does specific things. And that's not to say that the list here in 1 Corinthians is exhaustive either there are other biblical traits of love that could be listed but the apostle has in mind those specific areas within the corinthian church where they are failing in light of the spiritual gifts that have been given to them they were impatient they were rude discontented envious and they were inflated or proud Uh, they were selfish they were unmindful of the feelings of others and the concerns of others they were suspicious And they were resentful and and censorious. And, And to show them these things, the apostle's response is actually to have love personified. He personifies love here so that they might understand what it means to really engage with the brethren, with the other saints in such a way that would honor and glorify God. He treats love as a person here and he places her before them and enumerates her graces. Again, not in an exhaustive way, but in such a way that the Corinthian church may, by the grace given to them through the Spirit, that they might see their sin and be reminded then of the more excellent way, the the way of love. And here we see what this person, love, does and what love does not do. And because that is the case, this passage has a bit more of an edge to it, than we might really be accustomed to thinking about. This is uh, not just some lovey-dovey, all-warm-and-fuzzy passage. It's good and fine to have it on a mug or to have it hanging on the wall in your house somewhere. It's it's God's Word after all. But the Apostle is doing something very specific here. Nick mentioned last week how this passage is often read at, at weddings. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, we could get application to a Christian marriage from this text. But what Paul is doing is actually exposing something that is a, a problem within the Corinthian church. He's not, his intent is not to simply provide a working, God-given Christian definition of love here. And the scope of the letter to the saints in Corinth, it's really here. It's here where we're going to see the sharpness of Paul's surgical scalpel as he goes in to cut open the hearts of his patient, the Corinthian church and us as well, too, as we read this. So the apostle begins with a familiar, complementary pair on the nature of love, that it is patient and kind. And then he goes on to list actions or traits that the Corinthian church was failing to exemplify, things which he's already touched on in previous, uh, previous chapters in this letter already. And so he's correcting the Corinthian church here in enumerating these traits and, pers- and personifying love. This, this passage really is to be seen as a warning to them here because they were here. They they were using the gifts in a self-serving manner rather than using them with love for the brethren and for the glory of Christ. They were turned inward with the spiritual gifts. And so the apostle gives us God's definition of love so that they might repent and by grace seek to be conformed to Christ in this regard. So one profitable and humbling exercise that you can do is to just kind of throw your own name in in there, in the text. It's not, you don't want to read yourself into the scriptures, of course, but this is just something profitable that you can do to kind of, to to be exposed, to see the the scalpel that Paul is using. So you might say the first part then, well, Paul is patient and kind. Well, is that true? Uh, Maybe ask my wife, or maybe don't actually. (laughs) But, But, it's one thing to just think about one of your pastors in that regard. Put your own name in there. Put your own name in there and think about the, the, the example that, is, that the Apostle Paul is setting forth here. There is an edge to this text that we must consider. Because again, the Apostle is personifying love here. And this is a specific love. It's not romantic love or a brotherly love, even though it's in the context of dealing with love between the brethren, love between the body. It's, in the Greek, it is agape love. It is characteristic of God's loving kindness. And when you consider the different Greek words for love, it's not just the lexical information that's important, because sometimes you can see agape used in a way that's not speaking of love in this regard, actually. But it's the context at which it's used. And agape here is certainly referring to a love that is the sort of love that is spirit wrought in an individual. What I mean by that is it's a love that is revealed to us and given to us through the gospel, through the revelation of Christ in our lives. This is not the sort of love that a person may have through their own strength, through their own power. This is not the sort of love that an unregenerate person displays. They can't. It's impossible for them to love like this because one loves like this because God first loved them, 1 John four nineteen, We love because God first loved us. We, we don't hate our brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't even hate our enemies because God first loved us. In that sense, it is a supernatural love, a love that does not originate in us. It's a fruit or a, or a work of the Spirit in our lives. It's listed there in Galatians 5:22 in the list of the fruits of the spirit. It's listed, mind you, also with eight other fruits or evidences. Uh, two of which are the complementary pair that we have in focus for us this morning: patience and kindness. This love that the Apostle is describing and personifying here that we are talking about this morning and we'll be focusing on really over the next seven sermons, I think, is the result of what the Apostle Paul writes about to the church in Rome. So turn with me to Romans 5, please. It's just a couple pages to your left, I would think. Unless you have a really big font Bible. (laughs) Here... The apostle is enumerating some of the benefits that are given to us when we are saved, when we are united to Christ in faith. We have peace with God. We are justified because of the work that Christ did through the faith that God gives us. The Spirit applies it to us. And in grace, we're able to stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, Romans, the, the introductory part of Romans 5 tells us. And that reorientates everything This love of God for us does. Even suffering for us because suffering for the Christian then leads to other desirable virtues. And all because of what is said here at the end of Romans 5. uh, Romans 5 verse 5 I should say. The end of Romans verse 5 in chapter 5 says because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The love that the apostle has in mind here as for the purpose of the spiritual gifts back in Romans or excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13 is a love that has to be put into us. It's, it's poured into us. The richness of the mercy of Christ in election and in adoption and, re- and regeneration makes it so that we are like a cup that overflows with this love, not because of something good in us, but because of God's great love toward us. Pastor John Bunyan calls it a free, divine, heavenly, everlasting, and incorruptible love, or immortal love. Free, divine, heavenly, everlasting, and immortal love. It is the love of God, the love of Christ who is God. It's free in the sense that we did nothing to earn it. it didn't, we didn't cause it to come upon us. We didn't do good works to obtain it. We don't maintain good works to force him to keep it on us. In fact, the, the point the apostle is making here in Corinth is that we actually do the good works because of this love being given to us as a free gift. It's divine, for it, as Bunyan goes on to say, is of the holy nature of God. It's God's essential love, and it comes to us via covenant and is framed by the Trinity, by Father, by Son, and by the Holy Spirit. It is heavenly, meaning that it doesn't, again, come from us. Fallen man or woman who is separated from the love of God and Christ can't love and won't desire to love in the way that the Apostle lists here for the Corinthians. It's a heavenly love. It's a love that comes to us from above. It comes from outside of us, and it's everlasting. It has no end. Not not that love itself is God, but that God is love. As Pastor Joel Beakey says, love is God's nature. It's not merely a relation that God has with those outside of himself or an activity in which he engages toward his creation, but love is God's very being. And, And because it is such, this love is everlasting because God himself is everlasting. He is eternal. There's no beginning and there's no end to God. And then lastly, it is immortal. And by that, Bunyan means to say that there is no appearance of corruptibility in it or any likelihood of decay in it. It's not like that game that little girls play with daisies, right? He loves me, he loves me not. There's, no, there's a, a certainty in action with this love an immortality to it. And how great is this love that originates in God and is given to us, friends. It surpasses knowledge, We don't know the height, the breadth, the length, the depth of this great love. But praise be to God because we do know it. We do experience it. We see its change and its effect on our lives. We live in it. As a matter of fact, it literally gives us life. Apart from this love, we wouldn't have eternal life. Listen to how Jesus ends what we have come to call uh, his high priestly prayer. This is in the 17th chapter of John's Gospel account. It's the, it's the night of his betrayal. It's Good Friday as we've, we've come to know it. Jesus has instituted the Lord's Supper as an ordinance or sacrament of the new covenant. And right before they leave the upper room, Right before they go out, in which Jesus is going to be betrayed by Judas, Jesus enacts his office of the great high priest for his people, and he engages into a prayer, not only for his disciples that are with him then, but also for every disciple that would ever come into existence because of his grace and his mercy. Uh, for those of who are like us, who are here today, who are just like every saved person throughout history, who are brands plucked out of a fire and, and then devoted unto God. And so listen to how he ends this prayer. It's John 17 verse 26. He says, "This is Jesus talking, And He says, "I made known to them your name." And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. That love, it's in us. It's a work of grace. And then somewhat mysteriously, somewhat in a way that I can't exactly explain to you or I don't know that anyone could exactly explain to us, especially in, in this present age, is that we take this love, this gift from the triune God, and then we're able to love others out of this gracious love as well. This, this love that was given to us from Christ, this love that God loved His eternal Son with, is in us as well. It's wonderful, isn't it? It's humbling. Like, we couldn't do this apart from Him this is the same love that is enjoyed between father between son between spirit it's in us and it serves us to guide us in loving others in loving the church in loving the bride of christ especially now this means at least two things for us this morning certainly more but we have time limits of course i know you don't think that about us when it comes to the sermons but we are aware of time limits Um, so two things we want to take the opportunity to display this love to each other, you know, especially even at our time of uh, the, the fellowship at the picnic here. So just two things to remember. When we read, love is patient and kind, we're not meant to think, okay, this is what I need to do so that I can be right with God. Or that this is what I need to do so that I maintain my right standing with God. It's not that. This isn't instructing us on some sort of a, a works righteousness. This is not what it takes for you to be reconciled and living in peace with God. This is what you do because you have been reconciled to God. This is how you live in peace with God and with man because you have been saved. You get to love others this way. It's your privilege to love others this way. The the vast majority of mankind, those who do not know Christ through faith, they don't love others with this love. So it is our privilege that we get to love others with this kind of love because of what God has done for us in Christ, in the covenant of redemption. It's It's our privilege and it contributes to our joy, actually, when we are loving this way. And that means, of course, that if you are not loving your fellow believers in this way, that your joy will be lessened, right? That you're not using the law of God properly. When you're not properly engaged with your church family using the spiritual gifts that God has given to you, when you're viewing church as simply a quick little thing to do in the morning, and you're not involved with the life of the church and the body of the church coming back and inter- interacting and staying, you know, coming early and staying late, your joy will be lessened. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely certain because this is what God instructed us to do. When you use the law properly, the law of God, right? We might note that this personification of love uh, and the traits that are enumerated here in 1 Corinthians 13 are part of what theologians and the Apostle Paul really bases off of the text in Romans, that what they call the law of Christ or the law of love. But anyway, the law of God and the gospel aren't enemies, they need to be distinct. We need to make careful and proper distinctions as Christians, but law and gospel are not enemies. They're friends. It's the law of God that shows us our sin, and then because of the grace of God, when we have eyes to see our sin, we cast all our hope onto Christ and His life and His death and His resurrection. The law is our our schoolmaster to point us to Christ in that regard. The law also restrains evil in society, generally speaking. You know, why is every atheist just not out there living like a pirate doing whatever he or she wants? It's because the law of God restrains evil in a general sense because the law of nature which entails the work of the law, is written on the hearts of all people. Romans 2.15, 2.14 tell us that, that everybody is made in God's image and so therefore the work of law is written on their hearts and that serves to restrain evil generally in societies. Obviously, according to God's providence and his will, you see it restraining more or less in different cultures. But then thirdly, the third use of the law, we see it distinct from the gospel and yet still a friend of it, in which the law of God instructs us on how to live in a pleasing way before God. That's what the apostle is doing here primarily. Remember how 1 Corinthians begins, right? He's writing to brothers and sisters in the faith. Uh, He's he's writing to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, to those he actually calls saints in 1 Corinthians 1-2. So the apostle, when he goes on to list these traits of love, when he gets the scalpel out and he shows us the law of Christ or the law of love, we aren't to think, oh, I need to do these things so I could become a Christian, or I need to do these things so I could still maintain my Christianity. That's missing the point. We should think, I get to do this because I am a Christian, and then we pray for grace and help from the Spirit so that we actually can do this. Or, or maybe you hear these personifications of love over the next few weeks, and you think, well, I have no desire to love like this. That, when i look at my life that just doesn't describe me at all i haven't been thinking of my church as my family it's just something that i do for a little while on sundays and if that reality grieves you friend if that revelation if you have that and that bothers you then by the grace of god repent and look afresh to Christ for new mercies and for salvation in that moment. Because these are the ways in which we get to love others because of the great love that God has loved us with in the first place. And when we fall short, there should be an element of conviction for us there. Secondly, this love is mentioned here by the Apostle, is love that is given to us through faith in Christ. And I feel that we would be better served then at looking how both patience and kindness reveal the heart of God towards his, towards his elect, rather than like five a, a list of like five ways in which you could be more patient or in which you could be more kind. Because I think that for those of us who are united to Christ by faith through grace, we already know for the most part that we can grow in these areas. That's, we understand that. I think that the Spirit would be convicting us of that already, that we could stand to let love be defined more by being patient and kind towards our brothers and sisters in the Lord. And so I think it will benefit us more that it will be of greater use for us to be reminded this morning on how God himself is patient and kind and how those realities impact our lives. So we need to be more secure in how it is that God himself exemplifies these traits for us to be able to grow in them as well. So first then, love is patient. Or we may simply say that God is patient. Now, what the apostle is doing here with this complementary pairing of patience and kindness is he's giving us sort of an outline for God's love, for the things that he's going to say coming coming up after this first part of verse 4. Patience is his passive action and kindness would be his active action. So let's first consider that God is patient. That part of the essential being of love that that is that God is, is patient. The word patient here is from the Greek word makrothameo, and it means a lot more than what we might typically think of when we think about being patient. We probably most often think of it as having like a calm disposition of waitfulness. But Rossner points out in his commentary that while the Greek word can mean to remain tranquil while waiting, here the meaning is actually better understood as to bear up under provocation without complaint, be patient and forbearing. It is, in other words, then, to be patient in suffering. And this idea of being patient, I think, is familiar to many Christians because even sometimes you'll hear Christians caution one another when it comes to asking for prayer to be patient. And they'll say something kind of tongue-in-cheek along the lines of, well, don't pray for patience because, you know, God then may give you a trial. Well, that's kind of the point, isn't it? Uh, You're asking for prayer for patience because you have as a Christian this grace that that shows you, that gives you this instinct to pray for patience through whatever trial it is that is before you in the moment. It's good to pray for patience. It's a characteristic of love. You know, when a brother or a sister asks you to pray for patience with them, you can assume they're going through a deep trial, and so they need God's help in it. They don't need to hear a little tongue-in-cheek statement about don't pray for patience because you might get what you're praying for. Now, more on that in a moment. when we to get to application. First, of all, I want to point out that patience is a divine attribute of God, and it is especially characteristic of God and His forbearance with Sinners. The way it is used to describe God especially, it is directed more at people than at circumstances. And that makes sense, right? Because why would God need to be patient with circumstance? God is not moved by circumstance. He's not moved by anything. He causes all circumstances, right? For us, you know, the lot is cast into the lap. But from the Lord's perspective, every decision is from the Lord, Proverbs 16, 33. And so the King James Version really does a better job here of translating this word patient, I think. It's linguistically more beautiful, of course, in the KJV, but it, it captures the intent of this love with a greater clarity. The King James Version renders this passage, love suffereth long. Again, it's not describing only what love is, but what love does. Love isn't looking to strike back as quickly as possible. Love is willing to put up with it. Love is willing to suffer long in the course of injury and insults thrown at love's way. And we see this in the first place where we see the character of God himself. When God describes his own character, it's fascinating that when he starts with his nature and it's being of a, a, a the, he points out the reality that he is a long-suffering God. When God is speaking to Moses, he's, this is Exodus 34, he hides Moses in the cleft of the rock and God passes before, before him and he proclaims the Lord the Lord your God a merciful a God merciful and gracious slow to anger that is how God will be towards his covenant people especially slow to anger He suffers long with them and if you were just simply to read through the Old Testament you would see this sort of love on display on every page with God towards his people his covenant people both towards the nation of israel because it was god's intent to bring the messiah through them and then also towards spiritual israel or the church because of the electing love of god that was applied to them this group that exists within the larger group of the nation of israel certainly right we as christians today we could point out that god has been long suffering towards us we know our sin we know that we should deserve wrath Yet we don't know this wrath because God has been so gracious to us in Christ. Even now, as Christians, we still don't live perfectly. We struggle against our flesh, against the world, against the devil. And yet, because of the triune God's covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace applied to us, God is still for us and persevering us through our sin. He is long-suffering toward us, and we are not consumed because His mercies are new. This is the the passive character of love. Secondly, we may note that God is even patient with the reprobate. We would call this common grace, perhaps, or maybe uh, his, His kind providence, that He is even patient towards those who are not chosen in Christ. He is patient to those that are willfully living in rebellion to Him and who actually, in fact, hate Him. And you know, the holiness of God would otherwise demand that He immediately judges the lawbreaker and, that, and everyone who hates Him. But if that was the principle by which He acted upon, then nobody would ever be saved, right? Because even, even the elect are by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1 tells us. But that salvation is applied to us in time, at the time at which God appoints. And so God is patient Not only with us, the elect, but even to those who will never love him. Turn with me to Romans 9, back to Romans 9. I guess we were in Romans 5 before, so close to Romans 5. Romans 9. This is verse 22. Let me read to 24. What if God desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. You see, this is part of the mystery of salvation from our end. When it comes to a person who is outside of Christ, who is not professing faith in Him, we don't know if that person is a vessel of wrath prepared for destruction or if that person is a vessel of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. No, a little interesting difference there, right? One is just prepared for destruction. One is prepared beforehand. For glory. Again, chosen in Christ from before the foundation of the world. Those who aren't chosen in Christ, they're not prepared beforehand. God simply doesn't choose them. He, or, or said negatively, He chooses them for that reprobation. But God endures with much patience, even with these vessels of wrath, all for the purpose of making known the riches of His glory for those who are the vessels of glory. This, too, is the passive love of God. And and no, it needs to be distincted depending upon the context. It extends to some in a temporal blessing sort of way. And then it extends to others to true Israel or the true church in an eternal blessing way, in a saving way. And so we see thirdly that God's loving patience is displayed and revealed most especially towards the church as we await the consummation of His kingdom as we await with anticipation of Christ's second coming. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3, please. We may see this. Second Peter chapter 3. I'll be honest um, with you. This is, this is a tough uh, subject, of course. You know, when we think about the return of Christ, you know, why isn't, Why is it that Christ has already not come a second time to uh, consummate his kingdom? People have come up with all sorts of reasons and things that must first happen based off of interpreting Scripture. Because all of the craziness that is in the world right now, some people, based off of their interpretation of Scripture, may be wondering if Christ's return is going to happen with our generation, maybe maybe even very soon, within a decade perhaps. I'll be honest with you, for myself, I I can't say with great certainty that things must first happen, like for example, the advancement of Christ's reign over the nations as a simple political power. And I can't also say that just because things are kind of off the hook in the world right now, that this means Christ is coming soon. But what I can say with great certainty, what I think we can all confess with clarity, is that it is God's loving patience which is delaying the parousia. That it is his, his loving patience that is at this time, with whatever conjunction with whatever reasons the Lord may have, is delaying Christ consummating his kingdom. There are people who have yet to be born again whose names are written in the book of life. Mm-hmm. That, that, is, that is, I think, the primary reason as to why our Lord has not come a second time. So look at verse, uh, in chapter 3, 8 to 10. says but do not overlook this one fact beloved that with the lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years as one day the lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness but is patient toward you not wishing that any should perish but that all should reach repentance But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. You see, it is God's loving patience towards the elect that appears as slowness to some. It is his patience, not wishing that any should perish, not wishing that any should fail to meet with their calling and election in Christ as to why he has not yet returned. And remember, God doesn't change. He's, he's immutable. He can't change at all. So it's not like when Christ comes back, it's not like that means his patience has run out. God is going to maintain this aspect of his character because it is who he is. And so he will come like what appears to be a thief in the night to those who aren't saved, but it is going to be after all those who were chosen in Christ have reached repentance. That's, what's, that's his patience uh, towards his people, as Peter describes it here. And how is it that people reach repentance? Well, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, Romans 2, 4 tells us. And that is the act of love of God. Again, it's this complementary prayer, patience and kindness, rather than patience being his passive love, as we've been contemplating first. So let's think then of this category of being kind. Here, Paul also says that love is not just patient, but it's also kind. Love is kind. Again, this is the active character of love, of what love is often seeking to do. Whether or not it is being acted against or acted on in some way, this character of love means that love is constantly seeking to do kindness to people, to show goodness to people. It's an interesting word that the apostle uses here for kind, actually. This is the only place in Scripture that Paul uses this word from the greek to be translated as kind it does there's not a there's not even a hebrew equivalent of it in the septuagint in the old testament the the old testament that's translated to greek this is the one and only place in all of the bible that this word for kind is employed and it carries with it the notion of treating one as one's own kin treating one as one's own family member and isn't that how god loves us we already went over that in John 17, right? We get the taste of God's kindness, 1 Peter 1.23. The Lord is good at being kind to us. He, he makes us, his family, we're adopted in through the covenant that he, that he establishes with us based upon Christ's merits and Christ's merits alone. And so Romans, this is just who God is. But at the same time, we shouldn't presume God's kindness. Romans 2.4 also instructs us there because it is the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience that is meant to actually lead us to repentance. You see, it's not just some abstract concept. It, it acts. Again, it, it's a verb in the Greek. It does something. And love is useful. It is helpful. It's friendly. And again, this gets at the character of God in the passage which we read earlier. In Exodus chapter 34, the first thing we talked about was how God has this long suffering nature towards his covenant people, in two contexts, of course. It says, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Well, the very next thing that God is going to say is going to talk about in his uh, covenant love towards his people is that he, he's going to mention that his goodness and his kindness towards us. He mentions that he is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for the thousands. And so if you want to see what this looks like, if you want to see this in action, really, just look at the life of our Lord Christ Jesus. You have a man who has all the gifts of grace and of God, and he's God himself in the flesh, and he's here to do the most important thing for a man in all the history of humanity, and yet... When people come to see him, when children come to him, when lepers come to him, when sinners who the self-righteous had uh, put out and deemed as unworthy of engaging, when Samaritans and Gentiles and women with you know, lifelong conditions approach him, he doesn't push them away. He draws them to him in goodness and kindness with his, with his love. Jesus, Jesus is both gentle and lowly. He doesn't break the bruised reed, which is us, but he tenderly loves and bandages us with grace. He doesn't shy away from telling people of their sin and their need to repent, but he does it. Again, he's not like that Beatles song where all you need is love. It's love and truth that comes to us in Christ. Has there been any point in our salvation since we came to Christ that we've earned his favor? Isn't our life a, a life of constant forgiveness and dependency upon the Lord for grace and mercy? Isn't every good gift that He gives to His own a gift of grace? Is any of it merited? Do we deserve anything? Not now. Not ever, friends. It is always because of the Lord's kindness to us. That's why in Ephesians, we must always remember that we have been given something that we will never ever deserve. The Apostle Paul puts it like this in Ephesians. He says that we have been raised up with him by grace and seated with him in the heavenly places that in the ages to come, he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Even heaven's kindness, will all be by grace towards us, will not have earned them. This is so different than the world's standard. Usually in the world, right, it's, what are you going to do for me? And I'm going to do something good for you. But that's not the sort of love that the apostle is enumerating here. Matthew 11, he says, Come unto me, all who labor and who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble, I am meek, I am lowly and gentle in heart. And he'll give you rest for your souls. So coming to Christ is the, is the kindest act that God does towards us of all. That's why in Titus 3, uh, we read the apostle's instructions to his, this young elder named Titus, and he says, but then the goodness and loving kindness, but when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, appeared is verse 4. Verse 5, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to His own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. He's, he's referring to the incarnation, the arrival of Christ, and all that that accomplishes. All of that is rooted in the kindness of God. Our model again, it is the kindness of God. He's kind to his creation scripture says when paul wanted to instruct the ephesians about that about how he should engage with other brothers and sisters in the church he says in ephesians 4:32 be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another as god in christ has forgiven you the model of kindness again is god himself And God's forgiveness and God's outpoured grace to undeserving sinners shows to us the right way, the more excellent way, as Pastor Nick mentioned last week. Uh, We should point out that it, this kindness of God, it is His grace and mercy uh, behind the reason why First Family Church isn't plagued by all of these issues that the Corinthian church is dealing with. It's not to say that we're perfect by any means. We have much to reform, and there are many places where we must grow, speaking individually and as a group, collectively as well. But that our lampstand hasn't been put out, it is the kindness of God toward us, friends. Especially when you look across the landscape of Christianity today, and you see what what churches are doing. It is God's kindness to us that we have not gone that route, friends. Love is patient, love is kind. Now, as a way of application, there are a few things that we should think about. Number one, God's patience and kindness, we've been talking about this already, but God's patience and kindness is a model for us. It's a model for our own. We too shouldn't expect or demand instant results from our labors. We need to be patient. Theologian John Frame says we shouldn't expect or demand instant answers in prayer, but we should wait on God, knowing that God is good and kind to us in carrying out our goals we we must remember the importance of others and their needs and their priorities and if we're going to honor god and how we love others we must be willing to adjust our schedules to serve others our plans must especially respect god's priorities not our own priorities which we learn here in our text that, that god's love is patient and kind as petrus van maastricht notes He says, opposed to this clemency, that clemency is kindness related to patience with others. He says, opposed to this clemency in their own way are severity, harshness, and hardness. God's patience and kindness is the opposite of that towards others. You know, we're not to be severe or harsh or hard towards others. We're to be patient and kind if we're going to love others. Again, that's the third use of the law. Uh, Secondly, God's patience and kindness helps us to endure through all tribulations, including death, friends. It has become very apparent to the world, since of course so many have brought bought into the unbiblical mantra of the world is watching, that the church in general does not know how to endure tribulations and death any longer. COVID and near global-wide Government tyranny has exposed a weakness in the church, has exposed a weakness in the visible people of God. But the reality is that God is patient and kind of love toward us. And so in knowing that, we by grace may be able to set ourselves on a right course. We've already looked at Romans 5, which knows that the love of God poured into the hearts helps us to view suffering in a new light that it leads to other virtues. So because of the patience and kindness of God, we can respond to trials in a way that would exalt Christ, in a way that conforms us to Christ, rather than causes us to away, shrink away from the world and into depression. Uh, the apostles themselves know this experientially, and the apostle Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, in his second uh, letter, or I guess his third letter, properly speaking, to the church there. But he says this in in verse uh, 8 and 9, and he's talking about the life that he's lived as an apostle. He says, For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead." You see, what the patience and kindness of God does for us through trials is it causes us to not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's a shame. It's a sin when we rely on ourselves. So it's it's a good thing that God brings about certain trials in our lives, even trials that may bring us close to the door of death, so that we might put our strength and our hope and rely fully on Christ and in Christ. John Bunyan makes this comment on suffering based off of that passage. He says, by by this scripture I was made to see that if I ever suffer rightly, I must first pass a sentence of death upon everything that can properly be called a thing of this life, even to reckon myself, my wife, my children, my health, my enjoyment, and all as dead to me, and myself as dead to them. The second was to live upon God that is invisible, as Paul said in another place, the way not to faint is to not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are not seen are eternal. Friends, do you see how God's patient and kind love by grace puts us in a place where we can endure trials? How it reorientates our thoughts to think about this world biblically and to think about the things that we go through in a way that sees The end goal of them, the exaltation of God's beloved Son, and meant for our good even. The trials that come into our life, they're not meant to discourage us. They're not meant to destroy us. But God's patience and love through these trials are meant to cause other virtues to increase in our life and for us to be all the more dependent upon the Lord himself. And I sometimes wish, actually... That it was still common for churches to have graveyards on their property. I, I know that sounds kind of creepy or maybe a little weird to, to many of us, but we have lost something, I think, in the doing away with this practice. It used to be the case that churches would all have the cemetery there, there on the property. And you see, having one would help us to remember that death is part of this life. Death, death is part of this life, friends that as christians we are continually to die to self and that one day our physical death will come and it's not going to be a surprise to god when it happens but that that as christians we should continually die to ourself and that reality is not something that should have us gripped with fear because for the christian our physical death is the fiery chariot that chariot that brings us up to glory it is the door that leads to a greater closeness with our savior I mean, could you imagine having a cemetery on our property? It would be best for it to be before the main doors, so that you would have to walk through the cemetery on the way to the sanctuary. You would pass by the tombstone of those people who you know, of those who are still, in fact, alive in Christ, uh, you would pass by the graves of brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, saints, who have, and you would then get this constant reminder that they are with their master and your master, and one day you will join them as well. And further, when we rightly understand that the gathering of the saints on the Lord's Day, this is why we, why we emphasize, emphasize, hey, let's make the Lord's Day important, not because we're trying to do something that God doesn't want, but because this is what God wants. So we have an evening service for you to come back and continue to worship with us. But when we rightly understand the Lord's day, that it should be a foretaste of the eternal life that we will enjoy when Christ returns, if we had a cemetery on our property and we passed through it on the way to the doors to the church, we would be reminded that we all had to pass through death to get to that place. We're crucified daily with Christ, as it were, were to put to death the deeds of the flesh and for the vast majority of God's elect, we will enter into that intermediate state in heaven by our death, which will begin then at that point to live eternally in worship of God and which will somehow even get even better when Christ comes to consummate his kingdom when we get our new bodies and live in the new heavens and the new earth. But, but look at how this trial and, and the fear of death has just crippled our nation over a virus that isn't going to kill the vast majority of people. It's sad, of course, when anyone dies. You know, we weep with those who weep, uh, whether it's with COVID or whatever reason God has foreordained. But the fear of death and trials shouldn't cripple God's church. It most certainly shouldn't prevent us from gathering to worship. We have not been given a spirit of fear, 2 Timothy 1.7 informs us, but we have been given a spirit of power, of love, and of self-control, of agape love, a love in which God shows us his patient demeanor and kindness. And then thirdly, as we realize that love is an action, and that the apostle by the spirit personified love, we should do something better than simply inserting our own names into this text into this passage in place of love. If we're really to understand the greatness of God's love toward us, which God has loved us with, and the necessity of the work of the gospel applied to our life, it has been said that we should actually substitute Christ's name there in place of the word love in 1 Corinthians. Because it is there that we can see so clearly the grace of God for us. So let's try that out, okay? Since we're we're especially thinking of the love of God for us in the person of Christ now, we can actually start by placing Christ's name in place of love, beginning back at verse 1. So think of what that would say. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not Christ, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not Christ, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and have to deliver up my body to be burned, but have not Christ, I gain nothing. Christ is patient and kind. Christ does not envy or boast. Christ is not arrogant or rude. Christ does not insist on his own way. Christ is not irritable or resentful. Christ does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but Christ rejoices with the truth. Christ bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And friends, he does that all perfectly. And he does it so that, not so that he can be right with the Father, for he's been right with the Father from eternity. Friends, he does it so that we can be redeemed. He does it out of of love, so that we may truly know the triune God, who created all, who is over all. This is the love that Christ has loved us with. It transforms us when it's applied to us by His Spirit. He went to the cross. He, He took upon Himself a human nature, and he was obedient under the law, and he went to the cross there to pay the penalty of sin that we deserve, to take his own wrath upon himself so that we would not know it, but instead that we would know the the lovely blessings that he so graciously gives to us and supplies to us to sustain us throughout our life here on this earth and well into eternity. And so I ask friends, do you know this love? It's patient and it's kind. And it's extended to all who hear the voice of Christ. And so if you hear his voice this morning, I would compel you to look to him. So let's pray, and then we'll prepare to observe the Lord's Supper together. Gracious God and our Father, we need you. And we're so thankful for the great love with which you have loved us, the perfections of it, God. only able to scratch the small surface of it tonight but we are so thankful that we will get to know this love all throughout eternity and we pray that the reality of it might cause us to have a great hope and joy despite whatever is going on in this world we thank you for loving us so perfectly and we pray that you would sanctify us and mature us all for christ's sake that he might be exalted in our lives we need you lord And we're so grateful that you have promised to be with us even to the ends of the earth. So no matter where it is that we are this day, no matter where it is that your will is going to take us, we know that you are in control and we are glad. And so we praise you and we exalt you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.